0: welcome to the next level life podcast this is your host tony kane so As you know, it's my job to go out there and find the smartest and brightest minds on the planet. And today I have got a beauty for you. So I've got Chris Weldon joining us from Magellan. So Magellan are a fund manager. Go out there. They go and find the best quality stocks out there in the world, put them in funds that me and you can get access to, to invest in for our long-term future. So like always, get the notepads ready. Today is going to be an absolute cracker. Just before we get in, I wanted to give a quick shout out to a foundation that's very close to my wife and my heart—it's the School for Life Foundation. So the team at School for Life have been building schools in Uganda for a long time now, and uh, I know uh, where we are—we take it for granted that our kids go for school. But in Uganda, it's actually not, not its not a gimme that every kid gets to go to school. So um, we feel like it's very important to help as many kids as we can in Uganda to go, for, to go to school because it changes the course of that family's life. So if you've got a spare few bucks, head over to schoolforlife.org.au. It's for $50 a month. You can sponsor a child to get a complete year of school. Or if you um, simply just want to buy a brick for around about $30, that will help the team at School for Life to go towards building the next school in Uganda. Real quick disclaimer, so the conversation with Chris today, it's all general advice. Naturally, Chris um, hasn't met you and doesn't know your personal circumstances. So everything we go through today, my job is to teach you and to put you in touch with the world's smartest companies and people that can help grow your wealth and help you to live a better lifestyle. So before going out and buying any of these stocks that we talk about or putting all your money into a certain fund, it's important to go and make sure you get the right advice from a professional who can then put you in touch with companies like Magellan. So strap in, I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Very welcome, Tony. Thank you very much for having us. How are you holding up through isolation, mate?
1: Eh? <laughs> uh, we've, we've joked about this a few times across the team where you're very lucky in doing what we do. Um, we can kind of do it from anywhere. Uh, so apart from where we're doing our, our work day to day, sort of in bedrooms and basements and offices and things like that within homes the nature of what we're doing the nature of how we're spending our time hasn't changed much at all which is uh which is really really pleasing oh that's good and so chris as a portfolio
0: manager so i have listeners out there so you know i'm very familiar with magellan and i'm an investor in magellan but would you mind just for a minute or so just sharing the magellan story
1: yeah you bet uh well i guess we've got to go all the way back to 2006 then uh, when Chris Mackay and Hamish Douglas established the business. Uh, and in the early days, uh, we had the Magellan Flagship Fund, which was and still is run by Chris Mackay. That's now called MFF Capital. Uh, and then in the middle of 2007, uh, we launched uh, the Magellan Global Fund, which is and still, it remains managed by Hamish Douglas. Uh, and we also launched the Magellan infrastructure fund, uh, which Gerald Stack manages still today. Um, Now, it's probably worth mentioning, you know, the common areas across all three of those different portfolios since day one, and it's still very much the case for us today uh, at Magellan, is a focus on uh, attractive, risk-adjusted, absolute returns through concentrated investments uh, in incredibly high quality, outstanding businesses. Uh, And there's always been an equally strict focus on protecting clients' capital. Um, So, you know, if we kind of fast forward a decade, the scope of the business didn't really change much. You know, it's been primarily focused on global equities and global infrastructure. That's remained the sole focus of the business for really a decade. Uh, But then in February 2018, uh, we made a, a relatively minor acquisition in the scheme of Magellan, but we acquired early funds management. Uh, which brought a domestic equities um, capability uh, under the Magellan umbrella overall um, you know so that's that's kind of been the focus for the business the whole time I'd say over that time we've built out a uh, we built out the domestic um, distribution business very much through the advise channel here in Australia uh, though increasingly with the self-directed market as well and that's uh, come about by some you know, new and innovative products that we've been able to bring to the market here in Australia. Um, but we've also got a very uh, established, very important, very diversified uh, institutional client base around the world uh, also.
0: So, Chris, that being the case, like I um, you know, for someone like myself, I was formerly an advisor. We used to love the Magellan Funds. But if I've got listeners out there who are trying to uh, break that down a little bit and say, okay, well, so we've got all these shares across the world. So could you just give us the... I suppose the really quick elevator pitch of how an investor like myself or a listener out there via Magellan gets access to these sort of world's best stocks.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of listed securities listed businesses around the world. Um, and we approach it very much through the lens of a share is just a partial ownership in a business. Um, And by buying a share in a company on behalf of our clients, we become shareholders in that business. And so over any meaningful period of time, the sort of medium to long term, the results from that investment will very much be determined by the results and the economics of that business that we're buying into. And that's how we approach it. And our two objectives that are common across all of our portfolios that I mentioned earlier, those two objectives around capital preservation but also achieving high absolute risk-adjusted returns over time, that's meant that we very deliberately from day one restricted our universe to incredibly high-quality businesses. And we're pretty agnostic in terms of in which industries those businesses operate, though there are some industries we're not that attracted to. They're more cyclical and um, there's just less room to have competitive advantages in some of those industries. And we're pretty agnostic in terms of geography as well. Um, but beyond that, we get to look all over the world and try and find large high quality listed businesses. and through you know the work that we've done as an investment team over the last nearly 13 years, uh, we've found a couple of hundred businesses that we feel meet those quality requirements that we have. and then Hamish in the Global Fund and Gerald in the infrastructure fund get to you know pick maybe the best two dozen of those couple of hundred opportunities that we think are very high-quality businesses and they get to build a pretty concentrated portfolio um, of maybe sort of 20, 25, 30-odd stocks um, in those super high-quality businesses uh, when we find them available in markets at really attractive prices because that's the other thing about public equity markets is prices move around a lot and sometimes they give you the opportunity to pick up these gems um, at at a meaningful discount to what we conservatively estimate their worth Um, and that's that's a really attractive feature of public markets that we get to take advantage of things like that from time to time. Chris you
0: know what I love about what you guys do and I've loved this for a long time I'll put my hand up and admit I'm lazy right I want to hang out with my family go surfing go on holidays right I have zero interest in trying to find the 30 best stocks in the world so for listeners out there like I'm sure that if I really needed to I could go and youtube or google how to service my car but i would never bother doing that i'd i'm more than happy to pay a small fee to an expert to do it and and chris in a really dumbed down way that's essentially why you exist right is to be that conduit between okay there's the investor here whether it's an institution or a mum and dad or what have you and then there's all these stocks out there and you guys exist to sit in that middle ground and, and analyze what stocks and take all the legwork out for all of the the investors right
1: Roughly speaking, that's correct. I mean, there are at a very high level, there's, there's maybe two sort of avenues for an investor to uh, participate in global equity markets. You can pick the sort of passive um, channel where you're effectively just buying a market, whether it's the US share market or the Australian share market or the global share market in totality. Um, and you'll get the sort of average results of all of those businesses in those benchmarks over time. The upside of that is uh, they tend to not cost too much. The fees for those passive funds are often very low and they can be very attractive vehicles for uh, long-term investors. The reason funds like Magellan, businesses like Magellan exist uh, and the reason we charge you know, more than uh, an investor would pay in one of those passive funds is because we have a belief that our process and our philosophy and our universe Um, And the decision-making and portfolio construction uh, over time should allow us to do better than markets. You might recall right at the top of this, I mentioned we're not actually focused on relative returns. We're actually focused on absolute returns in our portfolios. Um, That's what we're trying to deliver is is high absolute returns. Um, but, But it's also true that an alternative investment for our clients and prospective clients is the total market. So if we can't do better than the market over time on an after-fee basis, charging a slightly higher fees than um, what a passive fund would pay, then investors over time would be better off in passive funds. We have to be able to do better than um, the the market overall over a sustained period of time on an after-fee basis. And you know it's relatively early days in Magellan's life; we're only a decade old, um, but pleasingly. And importantly, now across a range of market environments, uh, we've been able to deliver that superior after fee performance. Um, And hopefully the process will allow us to continue doing that.
0: Oh, that's exactly right where you've got the philosophy there but there's enough data now to suggest that the runs are on the board and what i'll do for the listeners out there are i can add some um some links in the in the show notes the performance charts and so forth and i need to stress again that obviously chris hasn't met any of you guys out there he's not your advisor so this is not financial advice but chris one thing i would love you to um talk to a little bit is ets there i mean um for, for maybe you and the team there that's like abc in the walls of Magellan but for listeners out there who are maybe thinking about they might have saved up some money and they wanted to get started in the investment world could you just talk through like for example I'm um, I own the MGE ETF and I, I love that fund but could you explain really simply to my listeners what you get by investing in that ETF?
1: Sure the ETF is, is just the structure I guess through which Uh, investors can either buy one of those two different options that I mentioned earlier. There are ETFs that will buy the entire market, and then some managers like Magellan uh, actively offer um, their products within an ETF structure as well. So Tony, you you mentioned MGE. It's just a very simply a listed version, um, an ASX listed version of our Magellan Global Fund which I mentioned we've had around since 2000 and, yeah, 2007. Um, so th- there's no difference in the portfolio. It's just we're providing the legacy Magellan Global Fund as an unlisted unit, um, which people can invest in. But some people prefer to uh, invest in listed products and we have uh, listed ETF structures like MGE um, and we have, an a hedged class and an unhedged class of of that product. Um, And then we also have some listed investment trusts as well, which is slightly different again, but I just, the ETF, I don't think there's much mystery around that structure. Um, It's effectively providing access to the same portfolio um, just for people who might prefer to own it through an ASX listed vehicle as opposed to an unlisted vehicle.
0: And Chris on that, like, if I'm not mistaken, so in that MGE fund, there's, there's companies that you might, you know, obviously the companies that you own change all the time based off performance, but you know, there's companies in there like Microsoft and Visa and Facebook, you know, and Alphabet and say Alibaba, right. At different stages. So what I love about that is I, even though I am in finance, Chris, I would find it very difficult for me to either have the time or the knowledge to understand that right now, Visa or Starbucks is a good investment. And that's what I love about the ETF where I can buy that fund and I know that it's actively managed from, you know, experts within Magellan who can understand that For at any given stage, Microsoft is doing well or not doing so well. And that's, I think, um, for a new investor out there without giving advice, it's, it's a little bit of a, I would say, a safer way to get access to a broader spectrum of companies without having to, you know, dig deep into the data of those companies. Is that sort of essentially correct? Chris?
1: Directionally, yeah. I guess you're kind of outsourcing that due diligence function to folks like ourselves um, who have, you know, we've got a very large, very well-resourced, and and to be honest, an an incredible um, investment team of analysts and portfolio managers uh, who can spend all day, every day, really getting into the weeds of this pretty narrow universe that we cover, as I mentioned Yeah, right. and Chris, I wanted to
0: um and thank you for much, thank you for so much for that education because that actually is uh it's it, it really lands on the listeners there because it explains the dynamics of it. So thanks so much, and mate, obviously I'd be yeah uh, it'd be miss of me if I didn't move on to the COVID nineteen and uh, what's sort of Magellan's essentially views on the global economy in the middle of this.
1: Well, that's that's the million dollar question. <laughs> uh, very relevant, obviously. Look. I'd say maybe just to kind of back up and explain the framework that we've applied, you know, towards the start of the year uh, as it relates to COVID-19, the the framework's really been considering, you know, three different aspects of this crisis that, you know, there are obviously the health aspects, um, there are economic aspects, and I'd say there's also political policy aspects to all of this as well. Um, And, you know, we are, we've considered four potential macro scenarios and they range from, you know, the the classic V-shaped cycle, which seems to have a lot of commentary and might be sort of the consensus view in markets at the moment, Um, then potentially a U-shaped cycle, thirdly a sort of prolonged and deep recession and then potentially a depression as well. Now, what is important here is that Uh, first of all, there's still an enormous amount of uncertainty with regards to each of those three different areas of consideration. And there's still a lot of uncertainty on the health side of things, obviously uncertainty on the economies around the world, um, and then policy uncertainty as well. Um, And to add further complication to all of that, um, there's clear uncertainty at the global level. And part of that is because there is a patchwork of policy um, in different countries and, and even in different states within countries in terms of the speed of reopening, um, the degree of testing that's going on, the contact tracing, um, the economic policies that are in place to support businesses and households. These are differing in countries and in some states, states and even cities in, in different places around the world. So uh, it's a pretty low conviction environment, to be be honest, from from a macro point of view. Um, But as we kind of roll up our views on the important economies and countries around the world to sort of come to a global view in terms of what we think the most likely macro outcomes are here, still recognizing the very high degree of uncertainty, we would say sitting here today, the sort of V-shaped recovery and the depression at the far other end of that, range of possible outcomes they seem quite unlikely sitting here today and I think uh, the most likely scenarios in our best estimate are those two central scenarios whether we have a a u-shaped cycle here or a more prolonged and deep and multi-year recession uh, they seem to be the more likely outcomes Um, but all of this is in flux it's obviously dynamic Um, so much will be determined by again uh, health outcomes, whether we get a vaccine, when we get a vaccine, you know, effective therapeutics, um, much will be determined by economic developments, um, obviously, and whether policy can play a role in um, providing a floor here to, to economies around the world and how effective it is then in stimulating an economic recovery at the appropriate time.
0: Chris, thanks for that. And just for the listeners out there, when, when they're referring to like a V shape, it's essentially the, the shape of a V where it goes down, hits a point and it spikes back up. And it, compared to a U where it sort of goes down, trickles along sideways and then comes back up. So that's just to sort of um, drill down on that a little bit. But Chris, on the back of that comment there, is there any regions or countries that concern you the most about the impact of COVID-19? Yeah, if
1: I, if I bring it back, Tony, to those three different areas of consideration, you know, the health, um, aspects the economy and political considerations you know I'd say we have the most concern uh, for non-China emerging markets um, because if you think through the health systems uh, in a lot of those economies they're less developed they have just less capacity to respond um, to coronavirus related issues yeah, uh, yeah. And then on the economic, economic side you know these countries tend to be a little more indebted they also Many of them borrow in currencies outside their own currency, often in US dollars, and that could be a challenge. And often we find the economies that are just narrower in their scope and, and related to that. Many of them are relying on energy, which, of course, uh, with oil prices down recently, that's, that's a meaningful hit to the, uh, to the revenues for many of those uh, emerging markets. So I'd say, you know, China, we, we think will weather this storm relatively well. As most advanced economies should weather it relatively well, but emerging markets outside of China, uh, we've got some some meaningful concerns around developments there. And in fact, we took some action uh, during the first quarter just to uh, reduce the sort of look through exposure within our portfolios to those emerging markets.
0: Perfect. And Chris, um, like, can I ask to get your take on the US in general? Because I know that's probably like. Rightly or wrongly in out from what the media sort of, you know, jammed down our throats for lack of a better word. It's it's essentially um, seems like the world sort of is hanging by a moment from what the US do and how their recovery looks. Um, So have you guys got some really general thoughts on how you think their um, bounce back will be
1: from all this? As we went into this, Tony, if I sort of think back to where we were um, late February, early March, the reason that I mentioned we had all four of those different macro scenarios within the viewfinder for us, including that depression scenario, is we were concerned that the initial response, particularly from the United States in terms of policy to support the economy and to respond to the health crisis was sort of insufficient and just taking too long. Um, And that's why, you know, sort of back in early March, we shifted to a much more defensive uh, posture across our portfolios. Um, and a lot of that was because we still had the depression scenario in mind, just recognizing how slow things were moving in the United States. As we sit here today, uh, in you know near mid-May of 2020, you, the policy response has been um, pretty breathtaking in, in some um, in some respects, particularly in the monetary policy side. You know, the Fed has um, Announced some new innovative unconventional policies here. They've really provided a backstop to credit markets and the functioning of um, the financial system uh, in the United States and fiscal policy has also stepped up here. You know, people might have heard and read about the CARES Act and the $2 trillion worth of stimulus. Um, so while the, re- the response may have been a little slow um, and appeared a little insufficient at the beginning, as we see it here today, uh, we believe that the actions the policy actions taken in the United States have really reduced that probability of a depression. Now, it still doesn't mean uh, we couldn't have the U-shaped or quite a deep and long recession here, but it, the actions taken to date in the United States probably have reduced quite meaningfully that, that the worst-case outcomes.
0: Well, Chris, you've just made me feel better. Thank you very much, mate. Um, <laughs> so, Chris, what about tech? So, I'm a tech head, right? I love tech. So is there any industry, including tech, or any stock inside the tech sector that you, that you love at the moment that you, that you could share the story of why you're quite positive on that particular company?
1: Yeah. I mean, we've disclosed um, through our monthly discos- disclosures through 2020, that we have quite meaningful position sizes in businesses like uh, Microsoft and Alibaba and Alphabet. And I just sort of take a step back. The reason we were invested in those businesses was because of a lot of the structural tailwinds supporting the long-term growth of those businesses, uh, whether that be you know, the growth in cloud computing, uh, the growth in digital advertising, um, those sort of long-term growth thematics. And what we've found, at least to date, through the coronavirus period, is that there's been a pretty meaningful acceleration in those trends we thought those trends were going to play out over years if not decades in some cases yeah. uh, and what we've found you know over the last few months and i think uh, the ceo of uh, microsoft characterised this quite well he said you know we've had two years worth of acceleration in two months in terms of the some of these trends that were playing out so the attraction to those businesses has not reduced at all in terms of the long term quality and growth That they offer what we also always have to balance against those fundamental views is the prevailing price um, and how much of that uh, long-term growth in cash flows and earnings and economics over time how much of that is priced in at the moment Um, and you know that those stocks have obviously performed reasonably well during this period Uh, we're still very much attracted to them but i just mentioned that you can find these wonderful businesses uh, you always have to be very mindful though about the, the prices that you, you pay or that you own, um, own them at.
0: Uh, I yeah, I've always found that, that really tricky, Chris, and I, I can imagine it would be complicated because, you know, Starbucks is quite easy to to value that company. You know, they, they, you know exactly how many coffees and bagels they're selling right across all of their stores with tech. It's just a, it's a, there's a lot more ambiguity, isn't there? In terms of, like the growth story, even though albeit amazing, is how much of that's been factored in and, you know, is that sort of why the stock's already so expensive. So um that probably takes me back to my point before where for me to ascertain that is almost impossible. And uh I think one of the things you said, just going back on your previous point, Chris, which really landed on me was the fact that as a company, Jellin, you took a real sort of you had a shift in March because you, you could obviously foresee that there was S- some real concerns coming up. And I think that's one of the things where I take a lot of comfort in, you know, companies like Magellan where I wouldn't have had the foresight, you know, to, to, ha- to make that, you know, wholesale shift on my own portfolio because I just didn't have the knowledge and, and so forth. So I think for listeners out there, you know, Magellan or any other, you know, actively um, managed company, it, I think that's where the benefit lies is where you get that team of experts like Chris and his, and t- his team sitting there going, okay, well, we're looking at these four possible scenarios that could play out across all these companies and we're, we're making, you know, changes on the fly to, to compensate for this. And I think that's, um, I think you'll find, Chris, for a lot of listeners out there, including myself, you can find a lot of comfort in that.
1: Yeah, I'd echo that tone, but also make the point uh, that there's a lot of companies we also don't feel like we can do that as well. You know, We're pretty tight in terms of the universe that we cover. And one of the reasons we screen a lot of things out of our universe is simply because we don't feel like we can have a reasonable view on what the long-term economics of those businesses and those industries might be over time. Um, but where we do feel like we can, you know, they are, relatively easy to understand or or kind of sit within our wheelhouse um where there are these you know very long-term attractive growth tailwinds behind them and and you're absolutely right i mean we don't know with any precision where earnings and cash flows are going to be three years from now five years from now Um, we do our our best guess and we do a hell of a lot of work trying to sort of come up with reasonable ranges of conservative estimates on those things Um, but you know there's just We do all the work we can, and then we build in sort of layer and layer of conservatism in terms of the assumptions that we run, the big margins of safety that we insist on when we're buying these businesses, the way we construct the portfolios, the different lenses of risk that we think about. Uh, It's really all those things operating in concert together um, that allow us to construct a portfolio that we believe on balance over time should be able to achieve those objectives that we have uh, for each respective portfolio.
0: Perfect. And Chris, is there any is there any industries that you guys are quite obviously steering clear of um, due to the COVID
1: nineteen? Uh, that's a good question. Too. There's nothing that we're steering clear of. There are some businesses and some industries that since day one we've we, we've always avoided. But yep. as it relates to coronavirus, sitting here today. We don't have any direct exposure to travel or or, or really anything right at the pointy end of businesses and industries that are being impacted by uh, the health issues or the economic issues associated with coronavirus. But that's what I mentioned earlier, the importance of prices. We do have some businesses on the sidelines that we don't invest in today, but incredibly high quality businesses that do have some exposure and are suffering at the moment. Now, if we got the opportunity given market price moves to potentially invest in those sort of businesses because we felt that all the risks plus more were discounted in the price and we were able to own businesses that we recognized might have some short-term headwinds, but had real long-term structural advantages and all the risks and more were in the price, that would be really attractive to us. And that's sort of where we're spending some time at the moment is sifting through those potential opportunities, recognizing that just because people understand they might have some travel exposure or, you know, shutdown or isolation risk exposure, they're sort of dumping those sort of businesses. Well, that might create the opportunity for some long-term fundamental investors like ourselves.
0: I think the key there, the key to that, Chris, what I, what I gathered was the two words that landed with a, with the long-term, and the fundamental, I'm talking just, you know, the, out in the surf and talking to people in the street, a lot of people were, scaring me a little bit saying, oh, this company's crashed, it'll bounce back. And that might be, that might be true, right? But I think there's more to it because you've got to look at, okay, yeah, most companies that have crashed are going to bounce back to some level, but then I would be asking a second question and going, okay, but are the fundamentals of that company in the first place sound? And is there long term story, not just their short-term recovery trying to because i think that sort of goes moves into from investing to trading you know if you're trying to buy virgin airlines on the cheap because you think it's going to grow in the next three months and then you're going to try to flog it off i just feel like that's a little bit dangerous and I, i don't want to sort of go into it too much because i don't want to cross that advice line but i just really feel like for listeners out there i i don't think that this is the time to be trying to you know piggyback onto a stock that's just been hammered, trying to ride a bit of short-term growth and then jump off the wagon because I think that could be a little bit dangerous. But uh, Chris, I won't hold you up, mate, because I know that you, you've got a lot more important things to do in trying to find out the best companies out there. here. So but a couple of quick questions I, I uh, would love to finish off. Um, as a company, Magellan, is there like one stock that you guys have bought early and held for a long time that sort of would, would be considered as a really good success story within the uh, Magellan business that you can think of?
1: Uh, I mean, a couple jump to mind, Tony. And I think they sort of speak to the, the style of the investments um, that we try and find at Magellan. You know, it would be things like, you know, buying Microsoft when a lot of the world had given up on that business um, and sort of recognising that it had missed mobile, that it had missed the internet. Um, there's a lot of pessimism surrounded by that business. But but with a lot of work and, and some very good decision-making by Hamish, you know, we've been able to pick that business up a number of years ago at a very cheap price, recognising the inherent long-term quality and some of the emerging platforms within that business, really around the cloud um, cloud computing uh, pieces of it. And that's been a very good investment. You know, business like Visa, you know, that's, it, it's interesting, right? It, it, Visa's an interesting one in the sense that it's not particularly difficult to get your head around um, the, the highly attractive nature of a business like Visa. Um, And I don't think we've got any particularly differentiated view in terms of the quality of a business like that or the long term growth tailwinds uh, behind a business like that. I think what we were um, successful in doing over time is acquiring it when there was a meaningful discount, you know, a decent margin of safety. And then just letting compounding work its magic, just owning it for many, many, many years now, maybe plus a decade or so now. And just letting the earnings compound at a very attractive rate over periods of time, whereas others might have been more tempted to sort of trade in and trade out and sort of feel like they could uh, get an advantage by investing that way. I think it's just been a consistent, meaningful position uh, for us across many of our portfolios um, and has just compounded very, very nicely. And I'd say in a a pretty low risk adjusted fashion, um, there hasn't been a lot of risk that there were a little during the GFC. Um, that you know they've got some exposure to travel and uh, things like that at the moment but I, I think over time the cash flows from a business like that will continue to compound at a really a relatively attractive attractive rate because they have some of these big emerging um, tailwinds um, providing that growth support behind their business but uh, all those things considered you know it's it's equally important for us to keep stress testing those views and challenging those views and um, recognizing whether those positive views are reflected in the price or not. Um, so, so while we recognize the very high quality nature of some of these businesses, um, it's just as important for us to keep stress testing, um, and challenging those views, making sure we still think those investments are capable of delivering the the objectives that we have for the portfolio.
0: Now, I love it. I don't think, um, uh, looking at holding Microsoft as part of the fund, I, I don't think uh, myself or too many people would uh, be losing too much sleep with that, uh, Chris. So Chris, mate, I, um, I just wanted to say thanks again for coming on, on onto the show today. I think there's, um, I know that you're into this every day and that, um, it might, it might've sounded somewhat academic, but I, mean, I really appreciate you drilling down a lot on all of those explanations of not only the mechanics, but also the, the research strategy. Cause there's a lot of listeners out there who, you know, are probably maybe getting, they're into this a little bit or they're getting started into it. And I think um, my job in this podcast is to go out there and get inside the brains of some of the smartest people and just break that down so everyone can understand that ultimately it's about buying good quality stuff and holding it for the long term. So, mate, it was, mate it, was really, uh, it was really nice to have you on today and I appreciate all that, that insight there.
1: Tony, uh, you're very welcome. And, and look, we applaud you for, for doing that educational work with your audience. It's, uh, it's incredibly important that people have some good understanding of, of these sort of decisions and anything we can do to help um, you and help the audience with that, uh, we're very happy to, to help with.
0: Mate, that is excellent what i'll do chris i'll make sure that the um all the listeners have access to to the details in the show notes of how to get in touch either uh, you know via advice or either directly so mate um mate, all the best and uh stay safe and i really appreciate you coming on today you too tony thanks again and keep well there you go i hope you enjoy that i know i did um i've been in finance for a long time and i still learn a lot And getting access to someone like chris is actually gold like chris doesn't you know you can't book an appointment with chris he's a he's a head portfolio manager for one of australia's best fund managers so it's extremely uh extremely lucky that we get access to chris so take that on board guys and i think what 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 i got a lot out of that was the fact that these guys are just experts you know they sit there all day they're looking at companies not just you know in New South Wales or Australia they're looking at companies all over the world and they're making sure that their funds have the top quality companies in them all of the time and I just take a lot of comfort in that as an investor knowing that with my wife and not my money um, you know and clients and friends of mine it's like okay well I'm not going to back myself to do it better than they can So I'll have access to how to get in touch with Magellan, but I always suggest to to people that I coach, um, go and speak to an advisor first, because you need, before you go and put money into a a fund like Magellan, you need to know how much you put in there and how often you put it in and make sure that you're not giving money to investing that should be going towards paying down debt. And that's why I'm so um, pro getting an advisor on your side to make sure that the structure's there so you can go out and invest in things like this so guys um that's it for me thank you so much for hanging out with me again today uh if you haven't already please hit the subscribe button that way every time i do a new podcast it'll come straight to your phone and it always helps if you know there's someone in your life that would benefit from families to to this just hit the little copy link button send them a message or send them an email share the podcast and uh if you're feeling friendly uh i love seeing um and listeners get something out of this podcast and leave a little rating. It means a lot. So stay safe, take care, and I look forward to catching you up um, in a couple of days on the next podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Cheers.